Hey everyone, I'm John Steele, and this is After Four, a podcast for InterVarsity alumni. Life after college is hard, and even a great experience with your InterVarsity chapter doesn't shield you from the challenges of transition. As we hear stories from real alumni learning how to make it in their post-InterVarsity reality, my hope is that this podcast will offer some encouragement, a few laughs, and even some hope for the future. This is After Four, and these are your stories. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whatever it is that you're tuning in, I'm glad you're here. I'm John Steele, and this is After Four, the podcast for InterVarsity alumni. I'll be honest, I was struggling to think of what to talk about at the start of this episode here. Some of you probably wish I'd run with that sentiment and just get to the guest already. Uh, so I did a little research to spark my intrigue. I'm always interested to know what national day it is. Uh, you know, National Bosses Day, or Talk Like a Pirate Day, or my personal favorite, National Pizza Day. Well, it turns out that there are a few interesting national days for the date when this episode will air. Today, April 15th, is, among other things, National High Five Day, National Banana Day, and National Glazed Spiral Ham Day. How about that? Who knew we needed to celebrate the ham? Well, be sure to celebrate right, eat a banana, high five a ham. Another thing to celebrate is today's guest, C. Terrence. He's a Marquette University alum, and we had a great chat. So great, in fact, that I've decided to do something new. A two-part episode. We just talked about too many great things to confine it to one week. So, today, catch part one of my chat with C. Terrence as we talk about getting older, the benefits of weathering hard conversations, and the beginning of our conversation about children and ethnicity. Then, come back next week to catch the second half. For now, though, here's part one. Enjoy. Well, C. Terrence, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here today. Yes, sir. Me too. This is going to be fun, I think. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> so I have lots of questions to ask to help myself and everybody else get to know you, but give us just a bit of a flyover. Who is C. Terrence? What should we know about you? Wow. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I love that because I don't think I think about myself that I have like this interesting origin story or anything like that. Yeah, C. Terrence Anderson. I'm originally from Southern California, a little city called Aliso Viejo. And I've got a chance to live in a couple of different places. Now I live in Minneapolis, which I think is quite a strange. Uh, like if you looked at my life at you know, from the beginning to where I am now, there would have imagined that I'd be living in Minneapolis, but I, I really do enjoy it. And I think I made it out this way by going to school at Marquette in Milwaukee, where I met my wife, Hannah. And we lived in Milwaukee for a couple of years, but then made our way to um, no, you're in Minnesota too, so we can maybe make the joke about the better side of the Mississippi yeah. um, <laughs> or the St. Croix. I still got a lot of love for Wisconsin. But so now we're here. We live in North Minneapolis and have two kids, my son Cassius, who just turned three last week, and my daughter Coretta, who just turned eight months last week. And I think we're having a lot of fun out here. I work at the University of Minnesota. Uh, I direct a series of community programs that does community-based research with folks. And I get a chance to work on organizing around public policy, supporting organizing around public policy, doing research about public policy. I teach at the University of Minnesota a little bit as well. And overall, just a lover of ice cream and sunshine <laughs> and water. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so see, Terrence, you told me that you went to school at Marquette. When was it that you graduated? 
I graduated in 2012. So you're not far away from a decade out of college. How do you feel about that? That's wild. You know, I don't know if you have this moment. You know, I turned 33 this year and I have this moment where I like, I never really think of myself older than 18 sometimes. Like, it, like I never really like, and it's not until like I look at pictures of actually that I'm like, oh man, I am a little bit older and it's wild. I can't believe I have two kids. I can't believe I'm out of college for a decade. It's just all of it just doesn't make sense in my day-to-day vision of myself. Oh my goodness. It's so nice to hear somebody else talk about that. So I turned 35 in October and I can identify with everything that you're talking about. In my head, I am still late teens, early 20s, and everybody that I see around me is older than me, wiser than me, more mature than me. Now, while many of them probably are wiser and more mature than me. I find (laughs) out that oftentimes I am older than so many of them. And it's just insane. When our daughter was born, I remember sitting in the car saying, I'm not a father. My dad is a father, not me. Yeah, I'm a dad now. That's, that's wild. I mean, I remember the days of being in elementary school and the local high school, their band would come play for us. And I remember thinking, they're so huge. They're so old. And now you look at college and high school, you're like, wow, they're so small. Have college students always been so young looking? I have that thought all the time. You know, I work at a university and even like I'm talking to the younger graduate students, I'm just like, I feel this gulf. Even if they're 25, there's just like a life gulf that exists there. A lot happens very quickly. There's a professor who invites me most semesters to come and speak in her class at Minnesota State here in Mankato. And I tell the students every time I'm there, soak up your time on campus because this is the coolest you will ever be. <laughs> every day of every year, I get less and less cool, less and less relevant to the college students that I interact with. And if you're a college student listening to this, just enjoy your moments of being the coolest you'll ever be. Seriously, you know, it was a moment that made me feel old. This is like a really silly moment. You know, that dance, I think it's called flossing. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm not going to say I'm the best dancer, but I could always do the dance at the time. But then I couldn't do flossing. I was all of a sudden not coordinated enough to do it. And that's when I was like, oh, man, I can't do the new dances anymore. I'm <laughs> officially have crossed some plane of time and I can't floss. Now, see, this is what's funny is that I haven't tried it in a long time, but the floss was the one dance that I actually was able to figure out. Maybe your perception is just a little skewed. Maybe you're too cool for the floss. You've got all these (laughs) other dances that you're actually able to pull off. I couldn't do any of them, but the floss I figured out and I figured, oh, maybe that's not a good sign. I don't know what this means. This is interesting. Let's have a whole podcast just about that. There's something really deep in there. I think you're right. We should circle back to that on another episode. Everybody be watching for the floss episode of After Four. (laughs) (laughs) So see, Terrence, when you were on campus learning these dances and able to pull them off in your spare time when you weren't dancing, what were you studying? Yeah, I love the way that you phrase that because it's almost like I went to college to study how to do the dances at the time. That's not totally untrue, but my formal majors were around philosophy and urban affairs. Within philosophy, I studied critical race theory and environmental ethics. And so philosophy and the urban affairs kind of came around into the ethics of urban planning. So what is our ethical structure for city building, for developing our communities, for coexisting amongst each other? That was kind of my, and remains my core interest. 
I would have to think that those would be some fascinating topics. I mean, in general, and just and to bring with you to almost any big city, but in Milwaukee in particular, to be talking about ethical city planning, that has to be a really interesting place to be having those conversations. I'm very thankful. The beginnings of that thought, you know, really started in Milwaukee. And I think it was because of the city that I was interacting with. And of course, bringing in the critical race theory, which is deconstructing race and and racism in Milwaukee, the most segregated city in the country, in this post-industrial town, this Rust Belt town. There's just all of that in one place. And I'm sure there are other places that I could have had that curiosity, but I think Milwaukee was the best place for me. It was so accessible in doing that a really brutal place to think about those things. Wow. So then are there ways that you see those areas of study coming in handy with the stuff that you're doing now? Are those things that just like walk hand in hand? Yeah, I feel very lucky in the sense that I think the things that I was really curious and interested in while I was at Marquette is what my career has been about. I became a transportation planner straight out of Marquette. So planning bike routes, looking into the long range transportation infrastructure around Southeast Wisconsin, I came to the Twin Cities to work for Metro Transit, um, doing BRT projects. And then I became the equity manager at the Met Council, which is a regional planning body. It's all the sort of the long range planning around the Twin Cities. And so that was very connected into those core interests. And so I feel very connected to who I was and what I was interested in. I feel like that's not an experience that a lot of students have of studying something that is particularly meaningful in the town that you're studying it in, and then being able to almost immediately carry it into your place of work. And I'm actually doing what I studied and prepared to do here. And that that has not been the case for very many people. Take that philosophy jokes. (laughs) That's right. No, it is. I mean, I have a partner that's very supportive that has allowed me to be flexible and make the changes when I needed to, to keep aligned with those things. But I know that it's not easy at all for folks out there. You know, what I like to tell a lot of my students today, though, is that sometimes it's not about the exact point that you're at, but it's kind of this arc that you're on in your life. And each of those things that you do along the way are going to be helpful to the next thing that you do. And so how to get people to believe in a less short-term version of themselves is something that I spend some time doing. So anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you are in that recent graduate, couple years graduate, I want you to feel yourself on an arc of things. Whatever you study, whatever you want to do is going to be relevant to your lens and perspective of what you do in the future, for sure. If you want it to be, you have to be intentional about it. But I think if you want it to be, then I think it can be. Wow. Yeah, I think we could just sort of wrap up the podcast right there. I mean, <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> Great time. This is uh, fun, John. This is right. wonderful. Yeah, this was a lot of Great. fun. See, Terrence, thanks for being on. No, if we're getting there already, five minutes in here, I'm excited to hear where we're going to go the rest of our time. But how often do we just define the meaning or the worth of our life by the moment that we're in? Uh, especially when it's a moment that we're frustrated with or we feel like this is not where I wanted to be. I must have messed up somewhere along the line or God messed up. And to say like, you know what? Maybe this is all part of your discipleship. Right. I think we're projects. I think this is the way that I interpret forgiveness and mercy and grace. Because yeah, in any particular moment that you evaluate me, I fall short. You know, we're talking about not feeling bad, but I do feel older and 18 in the sense that I've learned things, I've experienced things, I do different things now because of that. And I think I always have to remind myself to celebrate that. 
I'm a very self-critical person in a spiral of just critiquing myself or measuring myself against other people. But I think the way that mercy and forgiveness and, you know, we just celebrated Easter, what that means is, hey, we're becoming more than we already are. So I think about who am I becoming? And I think that's important. So then, C. Terrence, on this road of becoming, InterVarsity, I assume, has been an important part of that becoming. One of the things that I love to hear from people is sort of their story about how they got involved with InterVarsity. So what did that look like for you? Here you are, young C. Terrence on his journey. How did you meet InterVarsity? I transferred to Marquette, and I actually just got back into my faith. I grew up in the church, but then I sort of went through this period of rejection and came back into it in my late teens, early 20s. So I was just kind of getting back on this walk with God. And so I remember before I got to Marquette, like in the bulletin, it said different clubs to join. And, you know, I wrote down InterVarsity, da-da-da-da, like whatever, but I didn't really know what InterVarsity was. But I lived in this living learning community, and we'd kind of take classes together, and we'd have these intentional moments. And the first moment that we had was we went to an ice cream social. And at the ice cream social, this woman was wearing this shirt that said InterVarsity. And I thought she was extremely cute. <laughs> so I was just like, hey, can I call you sometime? I would love to go to InterVarsity with you. Like, I mean, I was interested in InterVarsity, but I was really interested in her. That woman turned out to be my wife and she took me to InterVarsity and I really got involved as her and I became really, we were friends more than anything for a good bit of time. And InterVarsity and her are together. That's a fantastic story. As you think about your time with InterVarsity, is there another story that stands out? I mean, you've already shared something very meaningful, but a story of like a particularly transformative time. You know, I think what's interesting about being on this podcast, I'm not sure if everybody that was in InterVarsity at the same time that I was in InterVarsity would reflect on those times as like our happy times. Because I think there was actually a lot of struggle as I was trying to understand certain dynamics like racism, sexism, conversations about gender and sexuality. These are all really important questions to me that I think as a chapter at Marquette, we didn't have maybe a good foundation to have some of those really important discussions. It's like eggshells. And my personality is eggshells. I'm going to step on the eggs. Like, <laughs> let's talk about that. And it was because, you know, folks will be able to hear this, or maybe they might not know this, but I'm an Afro-Latina man that presents as Black. And Milwaukee is this tremendously segregated city. As soon as I got to Marquette, my roommate was now like my best friend. We went to this party and this white woman cocks her head to the side and said, you know, you speak really well in the middle of a conversation. Coming from the West Coast, I was just like, what on earth? But racial tensions show up so differently in the Midwest. And so I was really struggling with that at a time when I don't think InterVarsity really had a lot of thinking about what that meant. And so, of course, I, I was forcing that conversation at Marquette. And one of my really good friends, Josh Green, who was on staff at InterVarsity in Milwaukee, him and I, I'm not sure if we were friends at that time, <laughs> because I think he was going from another side of that conversation and his world was getting shattered in a sense. And I was part of the person who was breaking it. So we kind of clashed. Now we are 
super close. I love that guy. Yes. Like I've grown so much with him. And so I think if there's ever an example of iron sharpening iron, that's how I would describe my time at InterVarsity. I was challenging, but they gave me a space to challenge some of these things or to ask these questions. And now I have a lot of really wonderful relationships that grow out of that real authenticity. You know, at the time you're in the conflict and now it's like, man, because we all went through that and we find this closeness in relationships, I can have these really authentic conversations with people. Like, what does it mean to really wrestle something or really see something differently than another person, but remain loving towards them, continuing to grow with them versus say, hey, we disagree, let's walk our other way. And so I think intervarsity probably more than most spaces taught me how to do that lovingly versus the Twitter way of doing things like burn them and walk away, <laughs> you know, walk away. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that time. I mean, it almost sounds like the stories that you hear of people going through like war together. Uh, yeah. I don't want to draw <laughs> unhelpful or dishonoring comparisons, but the idea of these people that go through these really hard times, you see the deepest level of who this person is, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you move forward together in it. You're both wounded, you both heal, you both get back out there and keep going, which doesn't feel like today's culture. Today's culture feels like if you screw up, you're done. I will end you. And to have a culture of we're coming from different perspectives. You talk about iron sharpening iron. We both have things to learn from each other. And that's hard, but it's so good. And that you walk away having helped each other grow in really important ways. And that you maintain these friendships that are even deeper than what they would have been. And isn't that the example? You said you have a daughter. I've got my own kids and we're all hopefully planting seeds for trees. We may not benefit from the shade from, you know, our children live a better life. But what does it look like for us to live a better life? And maybe it's just anger that got me to the point of, look, we can't move forward until we have a very real discussion about this. Because if I hold this, then I'm just holding the conflict for the both of us. When the, that's ultimately going to do is drive us apart, right? So if I really want to be close to you, and we really need to say what we really mean and be in a space in which both can hold that. Not to say that you can't be angry about those things or you can't disagree, but it's like, take off the mask. Let's put each other's real face. It's the same thing with God, right? You can't put like the mask in front of your relationship with God and hope that you get closer. I'm going to talk to you about only some of these things, or I'm only going to let you work on some of these things. Like, no, you got to be your full self with God. It's just as much as I think we need to be our full selves with each other. And of course, we find in our relationship with God, there's grace, that forgiveness, this notion that we're a project, that we can keep growing, and that we're not at the static point, that we're on this arc, right? All those themes that I've talked about, it should look the same way interpersonally, provided that people are mutually intending for the same thing. And so I don't think that we had that intentionality at that time, but that's just what I learned. It makes me think of Jesus and the disciples that he chose. I mean, you figure that he had a zealot and a tax collector in his crew together. Those people had some stuff to work out together. And I imagine that there were some really hard conversations that happened through the course of their three years of wandering around with Jesus. Actual community, at least this side of eternity, uh, with other believers is oftentimes figuring out how do we fight through the things that we see differently on? What are the things that, that we can learn from each other? And what are the things that we just lay down and say like, this doesn't matter. What an amazing experience to get to have because that's training for real life right there to be able to have hard conversations with people and to not just discard them when you disagree. 
We need so much more of that in our world. And then the openness to actually learn and change and be transformed. So see, Terrence, as you're going through these experiences and approaching graduation, were there particular expectations that you had for what your life was going to look like? So yes and no. I think I continue to be the kind of person that doesn't fully plan out my life. There's no point that I'm trying to get to in a sense. I mean, there's always like these things that I think are material, like, okay, I think I need to make a certain amount of money in order to do the things that I want to do, like pay off my student loans, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, little things like that. It's not a big part of my life, but at a certain point, it's like, okay, there's some hopes that I have out there. But I think I tend to be more like water than I am like a mountain in the sense of like kind of just flow where the water is given space to flow. Maybe that's just my West Coast nature. But what's become more important, especially now that I have kids, what does it mean to live a values-driven life and also a faith-driven life? I think what has always been important to me is that my life concretely reflects my values to the point where I would be just as happy working in a coffee. And I'm not saying this as in the lower sense than what I'm doing right now, but I'd be just as happy working in a coffee shop if I was fully living out my values versus doing something that was perceived as more important. And so I think my expectations for myself were that this is what I really cared about, then this is what I really need to pursue doing, and that there's nothing else. And the manifestation of what that looked like was less important to me than living this value-faith-driven life. When my life is over, I really hope folks say that that's who I was. I was this value-faith-driven person that's sometimes very uncompromising, but I was really interested in cities. So I was hoping that I could do something working in cities. And at the time, I thought maybe I might have been a professor, but I wanted to experience some things before I taught people things. And here I am kind of doing a little bit of both. So I guess it's worked out in that very minute vision that I might have had. But like I said, I never like, aimed to be here. It's just where the water flowed. Let's dig into that just a little bit more. Living your life like water, like a river, going where the openings are. What has that looked like for you over the last nine years or so here? Where has the water led? It gets more complicated over time. Hannah, my wife, she works in healthcare. But at the time in Milwaukee, her career hadn't been exactly what she wanted it to be. And my wife's white. So we're trying to imagine raising interracial children. And we just couldn't imagine doing it in Milwaukee. So I think we knew both because of our career, because of kids that we needed to leave Milwaukee. And we visited Twin Cities a couple of times. Like, I think we could do this. And probably this holy thing, but you know, my wife ended up going into healthcare and what's a better place to do healthcare than in Minnesota, right? And so now life just fits in this place. We've got a number of our siblings up here. You know, different jobs have been different functions of like, does this feel like a rich place for me to do the work? Is it sort of aligned with my values? Say, for example, coming to the university, it really fit family life. The calculations have got more complicated over the years as new people and things enter into our lives. You know, I want to do community-centered work and that chance to do that work for them to be their full selves, for them to have real opportunity, real power over their work. That's probably led more than anything changes in jobs where I felt like I was able to do that. So you said one of the things that brought you to where you are is the fact that you were interracial family, raising interracial children. What has that experience been like for you and your wife and for your family? It's a lot, you know, (laughs) it's a lot. So we live in Minneapolis. 
And there's a lot of interracial families here. So there's a lot of other kids who look like our kids. And I think most multiracial people will tell you about the identity issues that can arise out of that. And there's a really good podcast that I listened to that did an episode on transnational adoptees. So like a Korean child would get adopted into a white family on this podcast called Code Switch. But they talk about this notion of, I don't feel Korean. Sometimes I wasn't even raised to believe that I even came from this place. And so I may go back to Korea and not feel Korean. I think the line was what we really find is that our homeland is each other. That made me cry a little bit as a multiracial person. But I think that is the experience of multiracial people. We often find our homeland in each other. And so I think my kids will have that opportunity to kind of find other people who have a similar experience. You know, I'm a multiracial person that's not immediately presenting as such, you know, as an Afro-Latino person. You don't really see it in my name. And so that becomes its own difficulty. And so for our kids, we gave them a name for each other. Like they have uh, their name, Cassius and Credit, but then, you know, Credit's got an Irish and a Latino middle name, Cassius. And then he's got a Latino. And then one of my closest friends is Yoruba Nigerian. So he's got a Yoruba name too. But like, hope they find in their names, their stories. And I think those are some things that we wanted to think about. So I think there's that beautiful part of the experience that it's been. But then there's also, particularly like my son presents as Black and we're living through the murder of George Floyd. You know, last summer we slept upstairs all together with a ladder in our room because we were worried about all the things that were going on outside. And I'm trying not to listen to the trial that much, but I listened to NPR on the way home and so it gives us a little update. And then I didn't really think he was even paying attention or could really understand that he's three. And he asked Hannah and I, why did he kill him? And Hannah and I are just like... I'm looking at like the video, like they'll be able to tell, like I'm like right. looking at each other. <laughs> yeah, see, Terrence and is showing his face going back and forth, like yeah, and you know, just go. sort of like, what yeah. do we do? Um, and hopefully, all parents are talking about this. Not maybe this, but they're introducing to their kids over time. You know, this is our challenge in America, in particular, to deconstruct the way race and racism play a role in our lives here. But what that moment made me realize is that I'm raising a Black child. He may be multiracial, but I'm raising a Black child who's one day going to see himself in people like George Floyd and Sandra Bland and all these other folks who look just like Trayvon Martin. So I think even as a multiracial family, it sometimes gets simplified in the ugliest manners. And we hope he finds in himself his story, because I think that's something that's been robbed of us is being linked to a story, but I know that the world's going to simplify that for him. And so I think we're trying to raise him to be confident in his full complexity and the full project that he is, that it cannot be decided by other people, but, you know, sometimes he's going to have to face the ways that folks try to do that for him. So the last year we've been sitting heavy in that. Wow. These are some of the conversations that are so helpful for me to have as a white man who looks white and who has a white wife and a white daughter. Our narrative is much simpler to explain to our daughter. As far as what we look like, who we are, once you start getting into the broken parts of who we are, that's hard no matter what you look like. No matter who you are, that's very difficult to wrestle with. 
one of the things that I love about doing this podcast is talking to people like you, C. Terrence, who helps remind me that the world is so much more complex than the story that's going <laughs> on in my brain. To think about the fact that there are people like you who are having these conversations with multiracial, interracial families that have all of these different narratives that are feeding into the realities or the perceived realities of who they are and that they have to hack through the weeds of these stories. That is a hero's work there. Seriously, these conversations with our guests always get me thinking. The world and the experiences of others are so much more diverse and complex than I recognize. I wonder what a better friend, neighbor, and follower of Jesus I might be if I put a little more effort into trying to put myself into the shoes of the people around me. How might I see, interact with, and care for them differently? I have so much I can learn from alumni like C. Terrence. Well, thankfully, we all get a chance to keep learning and listening to C. Terrence's story. Come back next week for part two of our chat. We'll continue to discuss parenting, jump into mindsets for incorporating our faith into our work, and the idea of urgency versus patience. More good stuff coming your way. Until then, see you next time, alumni.